Hello and welcome to The North in Numbers. I'll be your host, Annie Goke. As a regional podcast focusing on news stories that particularly affect northern communities, we think local journalism is incredibly important. That's why this week we've put together a special episode all about local news, featuring actor and activist Michael Sheen, Jen Williams, who is the politics and investigations editor for the Manchester Evening News, and Dion Jones, brand editor of the North Wales Daily Post. My guests joined me via Zoom for an in-depth discussion on why local news has been so vital during the pandemic in particular, and Dion got the conversation started with his thoughts on the topic. I think it's a good chronicle of um, you know who we are, where we are sort of as a society, as a community, um, but ultimately, and something I feel really strongly about, um, it gives a voice and a platform to people and communities who might otherwise not have one. It has been particularly vital during the pandemic, I'd agree with that. Um, coronavirus has been a huge story, huge issue, because it's been such a national story, it's important that we've been covering sort of the local aspect to that um, story, because otherwise I think a lot of things would have fallen through the cracks. Um, you know, we've had in North Wales a lot of local lockdowns, which you know affect people at a very hyper-local um, level, but that, that's not been sort of framed really by the national media and why would they? So it's been up for us to, to pick that up and to deliver that information uh, in a way that keeps people informed. And I know, although I don't think the, the governments have been great in you know, delivering clear and concise messages, it's, it's been up to us to, to make sense of that, I think. And that, that's really important in this age where it's very easy to spread sort of misinformation. We've read a lot about how that happens and why it happens, uh, whether that's on purpose or, or by mistake. Um, and uh, Jen, I know you kind of wanted to come in on that as well. Um, did you have something to say about why it's been so important during the pandemic? What's been happening here hasn't necessarily been reflected in the overall national picture. So frequently we've had higher infection rates in other parts of the country. Frequently our hospitals have been under pressure when when sort of nationally, the national hospital system that you would read about on the front page of a, of a national newspaper might not sound as though it is. But actually, if you look at what's happening in our system here, the picture has frequently been been very different. So I think we've had a role in getting across clear, concise public information, as Dion says, um, quite often filling the gap that's been left by government, trying to explain people clearly that actually this is the picture here at the moment. This is the level of risk in terms of the actual virus here at the moment. And this is what you are and aren't supposed to be doing. And on occasions, we've had to sit and pick through legislation and figure out what different people in different boroughs of Greater Manchester are supposed to be allowed to do in any given week and often that has fallen to us to do because the government has not communicated that very clearly so I think that there's a fundamental sort of public information role and has been a fundamental public information role when otherwise it would get lost in the national narrative um I think the second thing which is about trying to rebalance that and the nuance of understanding the communities that you're writing about which again often doesn't get picked up in the national narrative so if you take, for example, when, when Greater Manchester was put under restrictions overnight, just immediately on July the 31st last year, that was the eve of Eid. And that was a really big deal for a lot of people in Greater Manchester. And I think it was really important um, throughout an awful lot of this that we were able to give a platform, a little bit like Dion was saying, to voices which will just get lost otherwise and to geographies that will just get lost otherwise because not everything is a uniform picture and in fact more than anything that's what COVID has shown that there is a huge variation in life experiences in different communities across the country and I think if you're not there on the ground reporting it from the ground then there is a danger it gets lost and there's a danger that it gets uh, missed by the people who are making really quite important and life-changing decisions so yeah I think the role has been really vital. 
Um, but yeah, I'm keen to get your perspective on this, Michael, because obviously um, Port Talbot doesn't have any local papers. Um, so what, what kind of problems do you have in that scenario, especially during something like coronavirus? Well, I think as Dion and Gemma both saying, the importance of independent community journalism pre-pandemic became very clear to me. In order to have access to, to reliable, trustworthy and accurate information about your community, in order to have the voice of your community represented, not just, you know, being spoken about, but being able to speak yourself as a, as a, as a community and being able to hear your community speak, not just the sort of high status people within the community, but the, the, the general population of the community to feel represented. And of course, to hold those who are making important decisions for that community to account. Uh, those are the, th the three kind of pillars, I think, of, of why it's so important. But obviously over the pandemic, I think, and, and Dion and Jen obviously will be able to talk more about this, but from what I can see, people have felt a real appetite and a real need for local information because it is life and death, you know, all of a sudden. And, and so it's driven a lot of traffic to uh, independent publications, but of course that means that the costs go up as well. Professor Rachel Howells did work on the news uh, infrastructure within the Patalbot area a while ago. And, um, and one of the things that she found that I thought was fascinating was not, as you said, there is no local paper in Patalbot anymore. I mean, going back to the early 70s, there were 11 local reporters, all based in Patalbot, working for five different local newspapers, all vying for stories, you know, all there embedded in the community. Now there is, there is none. There is none. And, you know, you can just imagine how, how much of a difference that's made. But one of the things that Professor Howells found was that it wasn't necessarily when the newspaper stopped and closed that was the moment of real disengagement with the community. It was the moment that the reporters weren't based in the community. When people were doing reporting from outside of the community, um, you know, maybe for, for the, the area that I come from in Patel, but it might be, if you're lucky, it's someone in Swansea, the big city nearby. If you're not lucky, it's someone in Bristol. If you're even less unlucky, it's someone who's not even in the UK, maybe. Um, but it was that moment when the news wasn't actually coming from within the community that made a big difference. So, I mean, uh, Professor Howells was finding things that people were saying that they were getting information from graffiti, from things scribbled on signs and notices you know it's 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 kind of extraordinary and obviously it leaves communities open to being manipulated by false information and conspiracies and all that and uh, you know and if you start to trust in voice anonymous voices on facebook or something more than a local embedded community independent news source then you know you've got all kinds of trouble haven't you yeah, absolutely. And I think what you're saying about, um, you know, if you don't have a, a trusted source of information and you're getting your information from maybe unreliable sources, that's been a real problem during the pandemic in terms of anti-vax uh, messaging and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it can be really, really dangerous. I mean, we've got a very we've got a very basic issue in Wales, which is that, you know, the majority of people don't know what is devolved to Wales and not. You know, I mean, I think people now have a better idea because of the pandemic, unfortunately, but, you know, that health is devolved to Wales. So, when you talk about the NHS, the Welsh NHS is separate to the English NHS and the, you know, the restrictions obviously uh, are different in Wales than they are in other parts. So at least that has become a bit clearer, although in unfortunate circumstances. But, you know, just knowing basic things like that in Wales is, is dependent on a strong 
local community journalism infrastructure, I think. Yeah, and I, think, I, I mean, also there's a parallel in Greater Manchester too, because some things have devolved to Greater Manchester, and I don't think there's necessarily been a good public understanding of what does or doesn't lie at, at local level. Although one of the benefits of having a particularly high-profile mayor is that that has, that has actually helped with a bit of public understanding about what is decided in Westminster and what's decided here. But I, so I'm, I'm from North Wales myself, and I know when I've been back and spoken to people, it's always struck me how little people know about um, which part of government runs what. It's, I've always found it really, really striking. Mm. And that's quite scary when you think about holding people to account. Yeah. Because if you don't know who's actually in charge of these decisions, then how can we possibly hold them to account? But yeah, I just want to pick up on um, what you were saying, Michael, about, um, you know, the problem that sometimes being when the news isn't coming from someone who's in that local area. Um, because that's, I think, one of the issues you have when you've got um, national papers reporting on local issues, for example, like there's a lot of maybe misunderstanding about the area or, um, you know, sometimes they can fall back on like lazy stereotypes and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, one example, it's not pandemic related, that really jumped out at me recently um, in Manchester was when the Daily Mail had that article calling, did a no-go area for white people which if you're from Manchester or even if you've ever visited Manchester is like so far from the truth it's absolutely ridiculous um but yeah so I, I was wondering if um Jen have you seen any sort of like that level of sort of misunderstanding of a local issue um in national reporting of the pandemic um I haven't got any particular pandemic um examples actually because this is just a constant thing it's a constant thing all the time it isn't just about misrepresentation it's things like tone it's things like knowing knowing how to like being able to write something as Michael says that's not like about you looking at you through a lens like you're writing with you with them it's like like us and not them and I think it's part of a wider political tension I think in this country about feeling as though all parts of different parts of the way that society is set up the trust is frayed because people feel as though they're being done too. They feel as though they're being talked about. And frequently during the pandemic, we were so frustrated here that we were writing about things that were happening that were clearly really important and probably things that were about to play out as a national trend, whether that was disruption in schools, whatever the thing was. But we had to wait until that was a problem in London before it actually became a problem. And it, it comes back to the point about having journalists in the place. If the journalists are in the place, then they understand the life in the place and they understand the community in the place. And they're less likely to write a patronising headline. They're less likely to get the tone of the article wrong. They're less likely to annoy their own readers and they're less likely to write things like did we being a no-go zone for white people. I mean, you know, I actually don't really think it's rocket science. I mean, in, in some ways, one of, the, one of the dangers is that if you do have what appears to be a local newspaper in existence, but actually there's no real local, local news in it. And any news that is in it is from outside the area or just from press releases or that kind of stuff. Then in some ways, those kind of zombie newspapers have, uh, uh, allow people to think that the, the community is being served when it's not. And that's in some ways more dangerous than there just being nothing, because at least if there's nothing, you know there's nothing. You can go, hang on, why haven't we got something? Uh, rather than these sort of papers that that just don't do anything for the local community. Um, Dion, did you want to jump in on this at all? Just, yeah, I agree with Jen's point. There's a bit of a similar uh, thing, but I, I think, you know, I sort of misconceptions about the Welsh language, I think, probably. You know, uh, I tend to find that sort of national uh, media will tend to, you know, kind of 
almost highlight the Welsh language as a, a as an almost you know ridiculous unpronounceable sort of dialect. Like, you know, I, I, you know, I'm really passionate about the Welsh language. You know, being the first person in my position to be the first language Welsh speaker, and it just you know, uh, I don't know, for want of a better frame, phrase, grinds my gears really. So yeah, I just agree with Jen said wholeheartedly. You know, and it can affect all sorts of aspects of um, society with this sort of lazy kind of misconceptions. I believe. It was interesting a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember when there was that Banksy um, uh, bit of art discovered in Patalbert one morning, do you remember that? It was sort of around Christmas a couple of years ago and uh, a guy uh, in Patalbert woke up and couldn't work out why there was a group of people standing outside his garage and it turned out that Banksy had done this this picture there and it was of, uh, of a kid with because uh, it was near Christmas and it was of a kid standing there and there's like what appears to be snowflakes coming down and with his tongue out for the snowflakes and then just around the corner of the garage you discovered that it was actually a burning skip and they were ashes from the burning skip and it was seen as a comment on the local industry the steelworks and that kind of stuff um, and there was a huge amount of writing about that it suddenly became like this big news story UK and internationally and and um, and all the writing was by people not from Patelbert. So everything was written about the town and it was obviously, you know, drawing attention to the pollution and, the, you know, and the way it was sort of talked about missed all nuance, all complexity about the relationship between industry and the community in industrial and post-industrial, you know, uh, communities. Absolutely no nuance at all. And a young um, uh, journalist called Sophia Lewis wrote a piece and, uh, and, and sent it off to the, I think it was The Independent, um, where she was trying to, you know, draw attention to, to the fact that it was complexity. And that was her first published piece. But it took a young person from Patalbert to go, that's not how my community should be represented. To have the confidence to do that is quite remarkable anyway. But but the, it just highlighted the fact that, you know, so much gets written about communities from the outside. And at those sort of moments where they suddenly, for whatever reason, are in the news. And you see all the stereotypes and all the, just the kind of, bullish way of, of talking about these communities that misses all nuance. And if you actually have the community speak for themselves, it's all in there because it's their lives. I think people have a very good radar for being patronised. They really do not like being patronised. Yeah. There is so much of that where you feel as though you're just suddenly under a, 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 in a Petri dish and you're being looked at, you know, down a telescope from far away. And people register that. They, re it, it, they, they feel it. Yeah. Um, no, I think what you're saying about nuance is, is kind of like the crux of it, isn't it? Um, like you you just miss out all those different perspectives if, you, if you've not got a local uh, voice on those things. Uh, but just bringing it back to the pandemic, um, I wanted to move on and talk a bit about how the industry has been affected. Yeah, Dion, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, how have things been affected at um, North Wales Live? Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that the you know industry in general has had a tough time. You know, during the pandemic, we saw a situation where you know people couldn't get out of their houses; they were reluctant to go to shops. You know, and that really had an impact on sales. If you think about it, we try and present newspapers with the service to make them as appealing and um, to readers, so you kind of see them on the shelves, and you kind of with strong local stories that you make you want to buy them you do don't have that shop window i suppose you know uh, i think that that you know was certainly for the first weeks of lockdown you know hits us really hard you know thankfully it's that rebounded really strongly and you know please say that um you know the post has kind of exceeded all expectation really in the subsequent lockdowns um but i can totally understand people's reluctance to actually go out to the shops at such a such a scary time 
what we did see, however, was, you know, like a massive increase in our sort of online traffic, you know, so it, that was really heartening for me, to be honest to you, because it kind of still, you know, obviously proves the relevance of local news, that people are really interested in, you know, local news from there. And it goes back to the points that, you know, myself, Jen, you know, Michael was saying uh, earlier in the conversation, we probably saw, I would say, like double what we could expect in the first lockdown in terms of online news and stories and like everything. So, so you know, you have to bear in mind that if we were waking up, we weren't allowed to go out till to work from home, which is a situation that nobody ever sort of could have foreseen, I think, in the months prior. Uh, and, uh, and people were desperate to know, so at local level, what was going on? Was this just a bad dream? Um, you know, is, is it a bit of a mistake? Will this lockdown be lifted tomorrow, surprisingly? So so I, I think the, the advantages and disadvantages to it is probably a better way of phrasing it. Of course, we had to sort of furlough some people to survive this business and that, but... You, you, you're filling people at a time when you've got the biggest story in our lifetime is sort of developing rapidly. It was difficult. I know that everybody sort of pulled out the stops to make that kind of local coverage relevant to people, I, I suppose. Um, and I'm, I'm interested what was going on at the MEN as well, Jen, because I, I imagine like a lot of like ad revenue is linked to events, for example. So was that did that have an effect at all? Um, I know that there was concern certainly at the beginning about the impact on ad revenue and I think yeah I mean like as Dion says across the industry I think um, I think we we took a hit but I think that it was also really noticeable the extent to which our traffic went up and I think to come back to what I was saying earlier on in some respects sometimes we were the only places the only place that was explaining clearly um, what it was people were and weren't supposed to be doing in the different parts of Greater Manchester because there was an, wasn't really another outlet that was going into it in that level of detail. So it's unsurprising that we were being used as a resource for that kind of basic information that they couldn't really untangle when they heard it announced by government. So, yeah, I mean, we saw we saw a big increase in traffic. Clearly, you know, we also it also helped that we had a massive political row in the autumn where Andy Burden was all over the national news. So obviously people were coming to us with stuff on that. I suppose something heartening to take from it was that it really did genuinely provide something that people were clearly looking for. Oh, well, that's brilliant. Um, in terms of like um, support from government as well, like I know as well as like the furlough scheme, they were um, putting money into um, extended like ad, ad revenue with a lot of national and local papers as well. Um, but yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Michael, because I know at the, like this time last year, you were asking for further financial support for hyperlocal titles. Um, did that, was that ever forthcoming or um, did you not really see anything from government on that? Um, well, it's it depends on which government you're talking about. So let's start with the UK Westminster government. So <clears throat> up until March of this year, so a full year since the beginning of the pandemic, really, and 11 months after the launch of the uh, All In All Together public health campaign, a survey that was done showed that 95% of the independent sector had not received one single bit of government support from their support measures. And so after a lot of asking, <laughs> the government kind of, I mean, I would say reluctantly agreed to a pilot ad campaign with just four independent titles, uh, members of the uh, Independent Community News Network. But up until that point, there had been, as I say, you know, practically nothing. And conversations between the ICNN and um, the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport and the Cabinet Office and the uh, the government's media buying partner, which is called OmniGov, 
those conversations are ongoing, but there's just an, an extraordinary kind of reluctance, A, to acknowledge the importance of the independent sector. I mean, we're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of professional publications that are reaching 15 million people online per month, and then a collective uh, print run of half a million. And as, as Jen and, and Dion are saying, you know, more traffic than ever during this period. And yet a kind of a reluctance, A, to acknowledge that, on the part of the UK government, and and B, to actually support it, to do something about it and feel that it's necessary to support it. So if if you've got an independent sector or a dependent, to a large extent, on local business ad revenue, and the COVID restrictions are on those local businesses and not allowing them to do that, then obviously that's going to severely affect you. And so if the government focus on the larger groups who've got you know ad revenue coming in from the big brands, multinationals, then, then the, the independent sector just, you know, is going to suffer terribly. So, like I say, after a lot of kicking and screaming, they um, they got on board with an ad, uh, a pilot scheme with four titles. But those conversations, uh, you know, are having to keep going. And they're, uh, from their side, they're at best reticent and at worst silent. So we'd love to see a lot more. Um, but when it comes to the Welsh government, there's been a lot more support. Um, Dion will know more about this, but um, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an £8,500 grant uh, given, sort of an emergency grant to the to the independent titles. Um, and then this year, earlier this year, there was another £5,000 support boost um, and, and, and an acknowledgement from Ken Skates, who's the Minister of Economy, Transport in North Wales, that how important the sector is. So... You know, there's, there's support there. And the Scottish government, I mean, earlier this year, the ICNN members up in Scotland were getting ready to do their third ad campaign in partnership with the Scottish government around the public health stuff. You know, and, and so that's in stark contrast to the UK government, who were, who were very clear that a lot of their public health campaign needed to be digital and needed to go through community media channels. They were very clear about that. And yet... Of the ICNN's 125 members, only one was given access to that. I mean, it's just extraordinary. So, you know, it's um, there's a long way to go there with the, with the UK government. But I'm glad to see that, you know, Wales is uh, is leading the way a little bit with the, the support that they're giving. But maybe Dion has a different, <laughs> a different perspective on it. I don't know. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add on that, Dion? Yeah, just to agree, especially the disparity between Wales and England, really couldn't have put it uh, better myself. And um, yeah, hopefully the discussions that uh, my, Michael's alluded to will kind of continue to progress. And like you said, it is ongoing. I was at part of a roundtable uh, last year with the sort of local um, news providers in North Wales. And you know, it was disappointing to see that um, so many hyperlocals in the area had kind of missed out on that round of support. But hopefully, you know, the figures that Michael's just quoted previously shows that there's definitely interest in it and, you know, and a need for that service uh, at a community level, I'd say. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll see um, UK government uh, following suit at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, um, one of the things that I thought was quite heartening about what was going on in coronavirus was it was really great to see local news reporters being represented in um, like the coronavirus press conferences. You know, like Jen, I think you were on them quite a few times, um, you know, asking questions. I mean, that that's not usually the case, is it? You don't normally see local news getting that level of access when it comes to um, these these stories, do you? No, so there is still a regional 
uh, lobby in Westminster. Um, it's depleted, uh, but it's still there. So for uh, those papers that have got somebody in the regional lobby uh, working for them down there, then those reporters are able to go into uh, lobby briefings. They are able to ask these questions on behalf of, of their titles on a routine basis. The journalists that don't get access are the journalists who are outside of Westminster. So what was unusual about the pandemic was that you had journalists who were reporting from another part of the country, living in another part of the country on a daily basis and uh, and able to get onto some of those press conferences, not all of them. So that was good. I mean, there were there were issues. I spent a lot of 2020 very, very angry about the way Greater Manchester was being treated. So it was it, it was good to have the opportunity to actually say, why are you doing this? Why have you done this? Why have you done this? This makes absolutely no sense. Uh, why aren't you listening to us? Am I optimistic that it will continue? Uh, no, no, I'm not. I don't think it will. I'm not sure that it will practically change anything. Uh, I actually put a question into number 10 on Wednesday about the fact that we had a quarter more deaths here than the national average. And I didn't even get an acknowledgement. So, <laughs> so no, I'm not optimistic about it. No. But it was but it was a good thing to come out of the pandemic. And I think it was also something which demonstrated possibly to um, to a wider audience that there are journalists outside of London who do actually know their stuff. And I thought a lot of the best questions came from people who are best based in the regions or who work for trade press. That was something for me that was quite noticeable. So this is not in, intended, in, incidentally, to be a massive rant about how terrible the national media is. But, but there is something about um, an absence of certain voices in the national debate. And I think that was very much highlighted by COVID. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, and I guess, again, you have the problem, even though you had uh, that positive step of people being out, allowed to ask questions that aren't based in London, you, again, those weren't smaller, hyperlocal areas that don't have a, a, a paper, you know, you're still not getting access then. Yeah, you've still got to have a paper to be on the, to be on the press conference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think um, I also wanted to have a look at how um, local news has maybe like shaped local and national response during the pandemic. I mean, have you, do you think it has actually, um, you know, had an effect in terms of like how, you know, councils and governments are responding? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of cases actually where some of our coverage did actually have a tangible effect. And I mean, I don't say that lightly, really, because I, I mean, it hasn't happened nearly as much as, as I would have liked. But for example, there was a row very early on about the fact that directors of public health in England had no access to testing data. Uh, other than the tests that they were carrying out themselves, the tests that were being carried out through the big centres that were run by the government or run on behalf of government by, by, by the private sector, were not sharing their data. So if you were a public health director in somewhere like Manchester, you literally did not know who in your city had got COVID. And even although it is part of your statutory duty to know that information, it was not being shared with them. I still don't really quite understand why that was, but I think it was to do with the way in which the Department of Health and Social Care set up the system. I think there was an, there were data sharing protocols that were starting to put in place. And there was also a kind of a complete lack of understanding at national level about what it is that local directors of public health do and that they are experts in their own right. And actually, in many cases, probably know a lot more about fighting an infectious diseases outbreak than some of the people sitting in, in Whitehall. So we wrote about that a lot and our politicians talked about that a lot. And we just kept going and, event, and we kept asking the government about it. We kept writing articles about it. And eventually the data was the data was handed over. And I think um, a more recent example would be some of the stuff we've done on primary care, which is under huge pressure here. And the huge pressure is now feeding into hospitals. And I know that after we we did some stuff around that a couple of weeks ago, that did sort of then find its way up the chain in Greater Manchester and to some extent into government as well, where there were then conversations about actually, yeah, should we be paying a bit more attention to this? The data is quite patchy. 
quite hard to get a picture of it because it's much easier to do that in the hospital system. But maybe we should be trying a bit harder to figure out um, what these pressures are and where they are. So I think that those are two examples. So, yeah, and, and I think probably also the amount of fuss that we made about the chaos of the local lockdown system back in the autumn probably helped. I mean, it, you know, the really huge row was the Andy Burnham with government row. But I think we I think we were quite successful at being a sort of voice for the people who felt so confused and disrupted and distressed by what the government was doing. I wouldn't necessarily say because we went on and on about it. That was what led to them scrapping the tiering system. I think that would be going too far. But I think we contributed to pointing at it and saying this this thing, this is not working for people. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, it's very important, like having that conversation starting, even if it is a number of factors that are actually leading to the change. Um, but yeah, have you seen um, anything similar to that in North Wales, Dion, um, where um, your your coverage is maybe like steering policy or, or, or just COVID response in either locally or, or nationally i think the uh, the one that 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 um sticks out for me um would be the situation around sort of covid tourists at the first lockdown uh, i'm sure michael and jen will have seen um well it, it was a pretty big story that that um you know after the first lockdown starts we lifted and there was still a you know do not travel warning in we had you know snowdonia and other beauty spots across north wales really just flooded with tourists you know and to, to the point where it was dangerous and we covered a lot on that situation you know there was there's a really famous sort of road leading up to up to the main path of snowdon called penna pass you know and it was like lined with people just dump their cars there parked and ignored it and that was a that was a big danger because it meant that if they you know a walk could fall on the mountain and there was you know, a serious medical condition you'd never be able to get the ambulance through um and i think the the, the wash given would probably depending on people's yeah and to, to, to a, a lot of the emergencies were depending on people's sort of good uh graces who sticks to the rules that didn't happen i think you know by highlighting that situation, we did get a lot of stick, you know, from some people, for probably privately, a lot of people champion it for, for raising the issue. Uh, but I think it did kind of spur, you know, um, the authorities into action, really. So the car parks were closed after that, you know, and they sent more um, traffic officers, police officers, and started towing cars away to start with them. Um, you know, had that situation not sort of been highlighted, I think we'd probably, you know, seen it, seen a potentially dangerous situation uh, happening in, in these areas. Um, Michael, where does that leave places like Port Talbot, where you don't have a local paper, um, in terms of like the democratic process? Well, I mean, I was just thinking then, listening to Dion and Jen about, it seems like a lifetime ago now, but in that first lockdown. And I I was hearing from, I have family members who work in the NHS, um, uh, someone who's a nurse in a local hospital, and I, she got in touch and was telling me about what the PPE situation was locally, and it was just, I mean, it was just terrible. And I was having people approach me anonymously, asking to be kept anonymous um let me know about the situation of what was going on about health visitors going into care homes and and the testing situation there and stuff that i was you know that didn't really break until much much later or or the the consequences of it didn't come out and i remember like listening to the radio and listening to the the welsh health minister saying things that i knew weren't true and yet it was able, he was able to say it because he was able to quote the WHO um, rules. And I knew from what people were telling me that that was just an excuse. You know, that, that I heard a lot of politicians using 
what the WHO was saying, you know, the guidelines around PP and all this kind of stuff. And I knew that it was, they were using the loophole that, you know, under those guidelines, it was saying that certain people didn't need PP or didn't need the, 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 the you know, the most kind of PP. Um, and I was hearing from people in the hospital saying, no, this is what is actually happening. We're going in literally with bin bags on and, you know, there's nothing. And I am terrified. I'm crying every night because I don't know if I'm going to be on the COVID ward tomorrow with no PP. And, and hearing all that. And I, you know, I thought this is a, this is a terrible thing. And I, I don't want to be in any way disloyal to our local hospitals who are working really hard. And I know what's going on. But, you know, your first duty is to the people who are on the front line of doing it. And you look around. I mean, this is something I've said before, you know, that you look around to use your voice and you realize there's not, there's nowhere to say it. <laughs> I mean, I was trying to get, you know, Newsnight interested and, you know, and they were doing something because I saw that they were doing something similar around PP at the time. And I, you know, and I was saying, look, this is what's going on here. And they kept going, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get in touch with you, get in touch with you. And it was just out of sort of, I wouldn't use the word respect, but it was because it was me. They've just said, oh, we will get in touch. You know, if it hadn't been me, they just wouldn't have said anything probably. And and nothing did ever come of that, which is fair enough. But it just showed the lack of anywhere to go to locally to be able to talk about this and say what was going on. And I could see that the combination of what what was going on and the, let's say, the 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 mismatch between what was actually going on and what was being said by people in power over Wales, not just the local area, would have made that a, a story. And especially, I suppose, with my input or whatever. But um, but there was just nothing for it to catch light from, you know. And that's and that's me with, you know, the platform I have. So you wonder about other places that don't have anything near that going on as well. So that 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 really highlighted it for me about our area at a, at a time where it literally was life and death. And then down the road, a long way down the road, it all kind of came out and suddenly it was a terrible scandal and controversy for the whole of the country you know um, but yeah I was wondering your thoughts on um, you know whether the loss of those sort of local like hyper local titles is part of like a wider problem because we've also seen a loss of quite a lot, lot of other community assets like for example libraries and local theatres and all that kind of thing how do you think that's like affecting communities um, well I think hugely um, pre-pandemic you know seeing through austerity, cuts to local councils, budgets, and seeing then how that kind of filters out through the communities. You know, and seeing, you know, constantly, every week, someone else getting in touch going, will you do something to save our library? Will you do something to save our theater? Will you do something to deliver? You know, you just see how much that is happening in communities. And, you know, and then you hear about the government talking about leveling up, which is a, a great idea in principle. But, you know, even if you look into the details of the leveling up, strategy it's centered around you know big infrastructure things in city centers and that kind of stuff which is great and that needs to happen but you know a lot of the communities that are being thought that that get called left behind communities are often on the outskirts of post-industrial cities and towns they're on the coast they're on they're in rural areas um and it's those communities that have had their i guess it's called social capital now um, but, you know, social infrastructure just stripped away or, over generations. I mean, you know, certainly in South Wales, you think about the communities that had the strongest kind of social capital going back to the, in the day, you know. And now you see a lack of community organizations, a lack of youth groups, a lack of places where the community can come together in a safe way. All of that going and local journalism is, is a part of that um, means that just pre-pandemic, 
that's an issue. That's a problem in terms of people not feeling like they have ownership of their community or that they're being supported by and, and in turn supporting their community. Um, but also during the pandemic, it, it, it really um, highlighted that if you have a lack of community organizations and community groups, then those are the people who are supposed to be applying for grants for their communities to help you get through COVID. You know, pre-pandemic, one of the issues I've found going around Wales and, and, and various communities is that there's a, there may be things available to apply for, but people just don't know how to apply for them. And even if they do apply for them, they don't know how to, you know, what's the best way to say, you know, if you're in the know and you get tipped the wink and go, if you say this, this and this on this application, you'll probably get the money. Well, not everybody has access to that kind of, you know, advice and support. And so that's true anyway, generally for investment into communities. But during the pandemic, I mean, it is literally life and death. If you're not getting COVID grants because you've got no one to apply for it on your behalf, then that is an issue. So it's a connected issue you know but um but it is part of a much bigger issue definitely can i just say how much i agree with all of that so many of the conversations i'm having at the moment is around the concept of leveling up and what leveling up is supposed to look like and there's a connection between all of these things which then um you know we talk i think we're probably going to come on to talk about trust but there's a connection between all of that and what's playing out in politics at the moment and the lack of trust that people now have in various systems uh, and in the media, um, or parts of the media, and in 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 politics, because over the course of what a generation, a generation and a half, all of these things have kind of gone at the same time. And it's true of the place that I'm from in North Wales. It's true of parts of Greater Manchester. That it's not sexy and exciting to talk about whether somewhere still has a post office or a bank branch, but it matters. It matters because these are about places where people get their, it, it's part of the identity and it's part of the, where the community meets and mixes and gets its sense of resilience from. And those things have all gone in within the same window. So actually, it's no great surprise that we've now got the kind of political fracturing, the political tensions that we've got. And building a new train line is, is one part of the answer, but it is only one part of the answer. Well, I mean, um, what Jen said there, um, you know, about trust and stuff kind of leads on quite nicely to what I was going to come to next, because um, I think a lot of those communities that we've been talking about who have sort of been left behind or, or marginalised, a lot of them are the ones that have been most affected by the pandemic um, in a way. But I think those communities often don't have much trust in media, not necessarily local media, but just like media in general, um, because of the way they've been discussed in the media. And yeah, I was wondering if you've seen any, Jen, this is for you and, and Dion as well, like, um, have you seen any examples in terms of like reporting around the pandemic where marginalised communities have, haven't been given the platform that they deserve for the stories that are affecting them? I, I mean, I would probably, I, I used the example of Eid um earlier on when when national government uh, announced that they're putting greater manchester under restrictions on july the 31st it was the eve of eid it wasn't mentioned in the announcement it just wasn't even acknowledged so that's like them locking down the country on christmas eve and not mentioning christmas and uh, and it was just extraordinary we've got the second largest jewish population in the country here um i don't think i ever heard any jewish festivals mentioned once ever how they might be affected by some of the things that were happening you can see some of this now playing out when you look at uh, vaccine take-up. Vaccine take-up is much lower among black and black British people. Um, that's partly to do with trust in authority, trust in the health services, trust in the media. So, yeah, I mean, I saw lots and lots of examples of it. And I think, um, I mean, 
we we can always be better at doing that and part of that is to do with an industry which is itself not uh not representative but i think again it's yet another thing i think that covid has has essentially demonstrated really clearly but yeah i was wondering um, obviously i think we things have changed quite a bit in 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 recent years when it comes to sort of like diversity in the newsroom um but do you think there's more that needs to be done in terms of um you know the stories we're telling and 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 who we're kind of amplifying in in local news yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's never going to be an end date for that. I think, you know, journalists and newsrooms in general um, should constantly sort of challenge themselves to make sure that they're on the ball with that. You know, exactly what Jen said. I think, um, you know, just specifically talking about North Wales, so I live in a town in Carnarvon in the West, um, you know, and but across the patch, it's about three-hour car journey from Aberdaron in the West to Rex or Saltney in the East, you know. There is no way that one person is going to be representative of all these different communities, and I've always been really keen on the fact I don't want it to be this is what Dion Jones thinks that people in North Wales should read, you know. We're very lucky we've got a team of reporters living in every county and every sort of corner, you know. So we constantly have sort of ideas meeting and challenging each other, like what do, uh, you know, are we sort of representing the, the right people, what's really important importance to people living in these communities and that, that's you know that, that that's constantly going to evolve and do have sleepless nights sometimes worrying you know um are we sort of speaking to the right people but what michael was saying you know are, are we sort of representing the people rather than writing about them i think there's a lot of work still to be done like forever is going to continue as far as i'm sort of concerned i think you know in an ideal world I, i'd like to have a newsroom where every sort of section society is represented um and think but i think the very least sort of commitment that we can is that that these you know people are represented in our coverage uh and and you know that, that's something I'm, I'm definitely keen on sort of going forward so so the broad answer is yes there is more we do there's always more that you know everybody can do on that the challenge we're facing is that 75 percent of journalists in this country come from the highest social classes or just under half 44 percent are uh, privately educated from independent schools. 33% are privately educated Oxbridge graduates, columnists I'm talking about now, um, whereas only 1% of the general population uh, has that experience. So there's a massive overrepresentation in journalism. Um, what, 3% of the country are Black, British, Afro-Caribbean, but only 0.2% of journalists are. 4.4% of the population is Muslim, but only 0.4% of journalists are. So there's, you know, white British working class is massively underrepresented in journalism. Uh, uh, the black population, the Muslim population, you know, there's massive underrepresentation. And if we're going to, if we want to know what's going on in a room and it's full of people, you don't, you don't just go and ask the people at one end at the buffet, what's this room like? Because you can get a very different story from the people down the other end. And during the pandemic, what becomes, you know, glaringly obvious, and it's true always, but it's become more obvious during the pandemic, is that you really need to know what's going on in your country. Because if you don't, you've got real problems. It's dangerous. And it's life and death dangerous during the pandemic, but it's, you know, no less dangerous generally. And if we're only hearing from certain people in our country, if not every voice is represented, then we've got real problems. Well, we have got real problems. Let's not say we're going to have real problems. The situation we talk about when we talk about what is dangerous and difficult and challenging about this period of time is because we haven't heard from everybody. Um, and so 
you know, that's why I, this week I launched a, uh, an initiative called A Writing Chance, which is about supporting underrepresented and lower income background uh, writers and journalists. So, you know, it's just a it's just a little thing that I'm trying to do, but it's indicative of a bigger challenge that we have that has to be met. It has to be because the trust, I think, for people as well, it, it even more dangerous. And this is sort of this goes back to that thing I was saying about like zombie newspapers, that in one sense, having a newspaper that doesn't do its job is more dangerous than no newspaper at all, because it makes people think that there is something going on. A similar thing on a, on a, in a different way is that when you hear a government talk about leveling up, but they don't actually do it. They talk about it because clearly there's an issue and, and it sort of ticks boxes in terms of, you know, what clearly is needed in the country. If they don't actually follow through with that in an effective way, then that trust is just, you know, destroyed. Whatever trust there may be is destroyed. And so in some ways, a government saying they're trying to do something about it, if they're not really, is more dangerous than a government that says, I don't give a monkeys about you. Group think is unhealthy among any group of people, isn't it? And I think we saw it in, you know, the same group of people from the same backgrounds taking decisions during the pandemic, and that was then reflected in some of the decisions. And that then also gets reflected in uh, in journalism in journalism too. If, if everybody's from the same background and everybody's from the same class and everybody's from the same ethnicity and often from the same gender, then you're going to go wrong. <laughs> Basically, you're going to go wrong. And I think what we see as well is that like lack of representation gets worse, like the higher up in newsrooms you go. So obviously like editors are much more likely to be like male and white than um, general reporters are even. So, yeah, no, I think it is like uh, getting that representation in local newsrooms would be a really important step in sort of like building back up trust with media. Um, but yeah, that was um, going to be my next question. Um, you know, what more you, aside from sort of like that diversifying, what more do you think needs to be done to sort of like improve trust in in local news uh Jen I'll start with you there I actually I'm gonna um slightly turn it on its head and I think that um in fact I think one of the plus points about local news is that I think we are more trusted than national news I've personally always felt more comfortable one of the reasons I've always felt more comfortable working looking at things through a Manchester lens um rather than a party political lens is because the thing that you're thinking about in that is what's good for Manchester and you're not thinking about um what's good for the Labour Party or what's good for the Conservative Party like and that's how I kind of prefer to write about things so my point being I think that 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 tendency towards a lack of political agenda and the the outlook actually being about the place and not about uh some other you know some other sort of uh, party political ideology or anything like that I think that uh, helps in terms of the level of trust. I think that it's really important to come back to the point um, earlier on that Michael made. We've 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 had a really tough decade in local news, a really tough decade, and there's no point in pretending that lo um, some local newspapers uh, offices have, have closed in this uh, in that time and haven't reopened. And I, I think that we're continuing the the work of demonstrating that they continuing. We're we're continuing to figure out how you do this stuff in a digital world when business models have been so severely disrupted by the internet that things has been in a massive state of flux but the most important thing for trust is for people to feel as though they're being written about by their own and that I think that needs to always be front and center of wherever we go to from here if that makes sense and there was definitely a period of time where that was really quite hard that was really quite difficult and there was 
a whole narrative of local news is dead, local news is dead. Actually, local news isn't dead, as I think we've discussed in terms of the traffic that we've had during the pandemic and how important it's been. But neither is it where it probably needs to be either, uh, as, as Michael has pointed out. So I, I think it, it needs to have, at, at its absolute core, it needs to recognise that it needs to be of the place, if that makes sense. And the people need to be of the place who, who are writing as part of it. As you say, um, we're kind of not really where we want to be where it comes to local news. And I'm just, um, you might not have the answers, but have you got any thoughts on what needs to happen to kind of get us where we need to be with local news? Um, Michael, do you want to jump in on that one? Well, I mean, I agree with what Jen was saying. I don't think the, the problem itself is not the news that is coming from local journalists. The problem is that it's not, you know, if if it's not, if they're not well paid, if it's not properly paid, and if there's not the support there for those news platforms, that's the issue. So, I mean, I would like to see a level playing field between, you know, and that's something that the government can do. Obviously, there's all kinds of challenges around connections between news and journalism and government, but they can help to create a level playing field, at least. So, you know, around the public health campaigns and statutory notices and that kind of stuff to be able to allow access for the independent sector to be part of that in order to give them support. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to see a network of truly independent, community embedded, uh, independent news platforms that are you know, full intimate with their community and accountable to their community and, you know, and, 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 and finding a way to create revenue streams for them. I mean, that's something else that I'm working on at the moment, trying to support that to, to find ways for hyperlocals to make money out of their news, being available to the bigger groups and the large, larger organizations. So that's where I'll be focusing. Thank you for listening to another episode of The North in Numbers, written and hosted by me, Annie Goak, and produced by Mark McGill. Huge thanks again to my guests, Dion Jones, Jen Williams and Michael Sheen. This is the last episode of the series, but we'll be back in a few months' time for Series 3. See you then. The North in Numbers is a laudable production.